Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP, the worldwide association of specialty programs and schools. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. It was trying to brand us. So we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. Join my host as they unravel the story of the largest and most shocking organization in the history of the troubled teen industry. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. And we host Stages Podcast. Binge close to 100 episodes. Hear the inside stories from backstage and behind the scenes as we go beyond the resume and into the heart of creativity and what it really takes to be in the business of show business. Don't miss our chats with this season's Tony nominees. If you love theater and entertainment, you are going to love Stages Podcast. Subscribe to Stages Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit us at stagespodcast.net. Ridiculous Crime is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, Elizabeth Dutton. Saren Burnett. You know what's ridiculous? Yeah. Did you know that the Goodyear blimp is the official bird of Redondo Beach, California? <laughs> so Redondo Beach, California. <laughs> on brand. Very on brand. I like that about they, them. They did like a resolution in 1983. And we're like, guess what? That's our bird. That's it. See, they pointed and they said, that one's ours. In the sky. Look, it's a bird. It's the Redondo Beach... Yeah. Wait, city bird? It's a city bird. Yeah, I didn't know what, I hesitated there. Because it's yeah, like, it's the Redondo a, Beach official city bird. I don't know if it's moored there, if that's the deal, but whatever. It's their city bird. They're proud. I'm happy for them. And you know what? It's ridiculous. <laughs> it's definitely ridiculous. Case closed. You know it's also ridiculous? Mm, tell me. How about a four-decade-long inside joke about Sir Francis Drake? Okay, that is ridiculous. But wait, it gets tell better. Me, tell me more. There's more. <laughs> There's also a rivalry between historians, some embarrassed, publicly tricked experts from Berkeley and Columbia, and a lie so convincing that it was added to the curriculum of California's school children's education. I love this. Yes, right? Oh, I forgot the best part. It also involves a curious little historical drinking society, or, or rather a historical society with a drinking problem. <laughs> you ever, it, it's called E. Clampus Vitus. Clampus is not a Latin. Okay, you know what? I, I'm just going to sit back and let the ridiculousness wash over me. Buckle up.
This is Ridiculous Crime, a podcast about absurd and outrageous capers, heists, and cons. It's always 99% murder-free and 100% ridiculous. Elizabeth, I'd like to tell you about Herbert E. Bolton. Please do. He was a famed historian and a researcher. He focused on Spanish-American history of the Southwest primarily, but generally American history. He created something that was called the Bolton Theory of the History of Americas. You ever heard of this? I'd never no. heard of it. Yeah, it's basically this idea that, in his opinion, if you're going to tell this history of the United States, you cannot just limit it to the U.S. You have to braid in the narratives of South and Central America, Canada and Mexico. So basically all of the Americas to tell the story of America. It's just too much of a braided narrative. That's completely logical. Yeah, right? He basically pushes for what he describes as a hemispheric history. Mm -hmm. And that was going against the narrative of the time. They preferred more of a frontier version of history. Okay. So basically, you have this super smart dude. He's the chair of history at Berkeley for about two decades, 22 years, I think, exactly. Mm -hmm. And in 1932, he was named the president of the American Historical Association. This dude is like big time muckety-muck, right? Congratulations to him. All right. You know, so happy for you. You did it, Joe. Yay. Bolton is a, like, basically, if you're looking at the pre-World War II historians, he is like, you know, up there on their Mount Rushmore, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. This guy, is he is he Michael Bolton's grandpa? Yes, oh, yes, he is. That's awesome. No, he's not. But anyway, he is. Uh, he was the type of professor though that was so beloved, students would sign up for his History of the Americas class. And when I say students, I'm talking like not just a lot or hundreds. Literally a thousand students would enroll for the class. Where would they have this class? Yeah, it was at Berkeley. I don't know if they held it like in the stadium. I've been at looking the Greek to see theater. like yeah, where were they holding a thousand kids? I don't know. I mean, I think this is too early for when like when I was in college, if there was an overflow, they would just broadcast it the lecture to other rooms, but they didn't have talkies. I don't know. <laughs> <ever>. <laughs> no, no talkies. So anyway, the, this guy's like, he's he's not just like good at his job, but, you know, at the level of, oh, I'm a researcher, I'm a professor, I've got this great theory, and I'm changing the way people think about history, but also the kids relate. Everyone mm-hmm. loves this guy, right? Mm-hmm. So he like would connect with his students, and one of his favorite things to tell them always was to keep an eye out for history, like the actual living, breathing history, but also the history that's undiscovered, the stuff that you wouldn't think is there. You know, flip over a penny, check the date, kind of like look into your history, because maybe that might be the buffalo nickel. I guess that's I'm mixing metaphors with or <laughs> coinage, but you get the idea. The dude was always like, keep an eye out, right? And yeah, one but of like his, pa- not passive learning, but active learning. Yeah, and he wanted them to have the, the that stoke for history that he felt. He wanted them them to also realize that they were part of history and that they too could discover it. And it wasn't just something that was dusty and in libraries, right? Maximum stokage. Maximum stokage, exactly. So he was really and particularly fond of this thing called uh, Drake's Plate. It was uh, evidence that Drake had visited the Pacific and no one had found it. Uh, researchers and historians and archaeologists have been looking for it for centuries. So he used to always tell his students, hey, if you're going out to the beach this weekend, keep an eye out for Drake's Plate. <laughs> you know, and there's also a, a sixpence from Queen uh, Elizabeth. And they also, he'd also tell them, you'll also be out, you know, on the eye for that sixpence. You never know if you'll find him. Either one would confirm that Drake had visited California. Huh. I thought, okay. But yeah, you know, it, it was this is the 1930s, and there it was accepted that he had, but they wanted some hard proof that in this plate would have right. been an incredible proof because he used it to mark the find. Or got it, you got it. Okay, yes. So one day, the miraculous occurs. <gasps> right? Okay, picture it. Mm-hmm. 
It's the spring of 1936. Mm. A 26-year-old department store clerk from Oakland, a guy named Beryl Shin, is taking... You don't like that name? No, I just, you know, sometimes parents don't think ahead. Although maybe at the time they're like, this guy's going to be a world burner, Beryl Shin. (laughs) Our boy Beryl's going to go right to the top, see? (laughs) Now, Beryl, the spelling of his name is odd. It's B-E-Y-R-L-E. Oh, I thought it was like Beryl, like what you put on to go over Niagara Falls. I like that that's where you go. That's your first barrel. <laughs> There's all the possible but wine barrel. Nope. The ones that go over Niagara Falls. I like With that. the suspenders. With the suspenders, exactly. Right, whatever. <laughs> so our boy Barrel Shin is taking a drive in Marin County. Now, at this time, it's pretty much rural. It's dairy farms. You know how it was back then. Not that you were there, but yeah, you've seen pictures. <laughs> so his car tire goes flat. There's, like, nobody around, right? So he pulls over, and he's like, you know what? Today is too nice for me to deal with this right now. I ain't ain't got time for this BS. No. Beryl is going to go enjoy himself a nice hike. So he's like, yeah, boom, takes off. Kind of a barrel roll. (laughs) You're going to keep doing this, I'm just, I can't stop it. (laughs) So Beryl rolls himself out of the car and heads (laughs) up on to a hike. And it's like, you know, green, grassy hills. And he says, you know what? I know there's this spot. If I can go up over there and then I go over that fence, I can see the city from here. It'll look super cool from the Marin side. So it's exactly what he does. He goes on this little short hike. He goes up to that spot. He knows he can see the city. And he basically is overlooking what is now San Quentin Prison. Yeah. Right? So he's sitting up there above San Quentin. And he's like going to look at the city. And he something like catches his eye. Some light coming off the ground and he looks down and he sees this little bit of brass sticking out of the dirt and he's like well that's odd Hmm. so he grabs it and he's like you know kind of dusted off and he noticed it has like writing and it looks old and he's like that's pretty cool so he just takes it with him when he leaves the, the the hill all right he goes back fixes his flat tire drives into town forgets about the plate for a while just you know he's like oh that's cool thing i found Barrel, Barrel's kind of a freewheeler. Like, he gets a flat. He's mm-hmm. like, you know what? Time for a hike break. <laughs> He's like, goes, yeah, exactly. goes traversing. Okay, finds something cool. Mm-hmm. Doesn't even really read it. And then no. tosses it in the back of the jalopy. And is like, like I got to get back to Oakland. And then he honks. And then off he goes. <laughs> He's just rolling. Yeah. Barrel. So, Barrel, uh, eventually, you know, he does check the plate. And he sees that on the plate are letters, right? He can make out these, like, it looks like two words. He's like, what is that? It's an F, an R, an A-N-C-I-S-D-R-A-K-E. Boom. Francis Drake. Nice job. Now, it, you have to understand, Beryl is, as I said, an Oakland store clerk. He's like, not not saying the guy, I don't know how intelligent he is, but he, of his own volition, he tells the local press when this find is later on announced that, quote, history never meant anything to me. Hmm. So he's like, I don't even know what to do with this plate. Friend goes, hey, man. Take it over to Berkeley. All those big brains got to know something, what's up with this plate, right? And he's yeah. like, it's a good idea, bro. I'm going to go do that. So he goes over, and who does he run into? Herbert E. Bolton, the chair of history at Berkeley. Herbie. Herbie. Herbie E. So Herbie inspects the plate closely, and he's like, huh, okay, so five by eight brass plate. There's some handwriting on it. Here's the same thing, F-R-A-N-C-I-S. He's freaking out, right? He's like, and it's hand-scrawled. He recognizes it looks correct. It's 16th century type font. The the, the lettering is correct. He's like, wait a minute. He loses his his incontinence. The brother's like, pah. He peed himself? Well, not really. I'm just saying it because, you know, he he lost his shit. Should be really, let's say... (laughs) 
respectful of this professor, right? He soiled his tweed trousers. Yes, he did. <laughs> so the man is beside himself, right? Yeah, Beryl's sitting there watching it, and he's like, just yeah, as he told a newspaper man later on, quote, he flustered all over the place. Boy, was he excited, right? And you're just, you can kind of picture the scene. Now, can you imagine that moment for a historian? Oh like my God. some stranger walks in with the greatest find you may see in your, like, you know, career. That's his holy grail, right? Yeah, completely his holy grail. As a historian of the West, mm-hmm. to be able to connect to Drake, you yeah. know, is like, and a Californian. Yeah, yeah. Now, I don't even know quite how to best place, like, how how Bolton, you know, he sees this plate and he doesn't think necessarily purely for himself. He doesn't go like, I'm going to be no famous for finding this. He's just so excited about it. He's a true researcher. He focuses entirely on the plate. He tries to authenticate it. He's like, what can I do about this? How can I authenticate it? And he gets other experts to look at it at the university. And he's like, he becomes convinced absolutely mm-hmm. convinced this is authentico the real deal holyfield he's like this plate is sir francis drake's plate we found it right so on april 6 1937 professor bolton calls all of his historical colleagues together he's got a big announcement he's gather like, around fellas <laughs> suit up guys put on your best tweed we're going to an announcement so put his, on your glad rags <laughs> in his words he says it is a find quote most sensational right you know he talks like this a story so charming of right him. can't you just picture this guy I mean, he's like a little, i kind of not like he's a fuddy-duddy but, but i just picture you like keep a, calling him bolton and then in my mind i'm either imagining michael bolton or john bolton oh those are rough yeah, no, it's, it's a rough back and forth in my head. But yeah, that's we need kinda, to get you a new Bolton. But that's kind of how it always is, the old rough back and forth in my head. Go on. I'm just going to set that aside for now. <laughs> okay, so it's April 6, 1937. Now, he picks for his big announcement, the Sir Francis Drake Hotel in San Francisco. Oh, All right, a little historian's yeah. joke. Right? But, so, you know, nice place. Oh, definitely nice place. I actually never stayed there, but I've been in it. Nice place. Professor Bolton takes the stage and he greets his gathered colleagues. They look up at him, all these other, you know, tweedy luminaries, and they're like, what's he got for us? I can't imagine what the announcement's going to be. And everyone's got like a, a hush falls on the crowd. And he goes out there. He lifts up the five by eight plate and he says, behold, Drake's plate, the plate of brass, California's choicest archaeological treasure. And they all go oh, claps and woos and exhortations of excitement. I don't know what historians sound like when Some they get excited. Some guy in the front like lifted his shirt up. Ow! Ooh, just nipple flash. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So the crowd's impressed, right? And <laughs> that's how it, that's how it works. I mean, historians are known to be loose people, right? Wild. And when now all these historians know what this plate means, mm-hmm. but for you to know exactly what this means, let's take a quick break. I'll be right back, and I'll tell you why these history buffs were so excited and what this plate would mean for all of history and for you know Professor Bolton's career. Yeah, I, that would be helpful for me. Enjoy the break. rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? Shh. Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. 
Member FDIC. Terms apply. As you know, the world can be a dangerous and unpredictable place. With every crime I've studied, I've learned one thing. Your best line of defense is your vigilance and preparation. You don't want to worry. You just want peace of mind. That's why I recommend Simply Safe Home Security. For every ridiculous robbery and theft we talk about, it's pretty obvious the crimes could be avoided with a solid security system. A good home security system keeps people prepared and aware. Simply Safe is that system. It was named Best Home Security Systems 2024 by U.S. News and World Report. And it doesn't just protect your home from crime, it also alerts you to fire, floods, and other emergencies. They offer sensors and cameras backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than a dollar a day. There are no contracts, and there's a 60-day money-back guarantee. Get 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect Monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com slash ridiculous crime. That's simplysafe.com slash ridiculous crime. There's no safe like Simply Safe. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold Blooded The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily to die for is available now listen for free on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts all right so back to our story berkeley history professor Herbert E. Bolton, mm -hmm. he gets brought a plate by the Oakland Department Store clerk, your boy, Beryl Shin. Beryl. And, Beryl Shin. Uh, yeah, right? It's, it's the flat-tired Marin, Beryl Shin. <laughs> now, the, um, 
The historians are all super excited because of what this will mean for the history of the Southwest and for California. And just in general, it's one of those things that it's like kind of a fixation, as you pointed out, like the Holy Grail. It's just something that even though it's, it is just one archaeological find, it has great significance to them symbolically. So if it's their Holy Grail, but why? Why is that? Well, basically, this would be the physical evidence that Drake's expedition actually visited California during his top-secret uh, world circumnavigation globe trek sent off by Queen Elizabeth, right? Okay. So she's like, oh, go off. And we have his record. We have, like, he left a, a voluminous diary, and there's all these, uh, he basically says, oh, I was at this latitude, this longitude. So he puts himself there, but we want a physical proof that he set foot on the shores, so yeah. the historians in this yeah. case. So... When the historians and the archaeologists are all sitting there gathered at the Sir Francis Drake Hotel and Bolton holds up the plate, behold, Drake's plate! And everybody's all excited, right? You have to understand a little bit about Professor Bolton and treasure, right? And also about Sir Francis Drake writ large, okay? Mm-hmm. In 1921, Professor Bolton was brought this old document uh, this dude Adam Fisher had found. And he goes, hey, Professor, can you translate this for me? It's in this weird old Spanish. And he's like, oh, yes, it's a royal Spanish from this certain period of time. And guys, cool, cool. I don't need to know all the details, Doc, but can you translate it? Professor Bolton's like, yeah, sure. Translates it. And he's like, okay, what you have here is a document that details the location of a buried Spanish treasure. What? And the guy's like, for real? And he's like, well, he knew what he had. But he's like, are you, it really does say that? And he's like, yeah, these, these are all the instructions to go find it. The guy's like, man, Doc, you want to uh, maybe go with me on this uh, treasure hunt? Sure. Professor Bolton's like, no, I'm too busy uh, for a treasure hunt. He had history to get to, right? So That sounds okay. Right? So, yeah, six months later, Bolton hears word that this same dude, Fisher, who'd come to visit him, was busy, uh, and he was arranging an export permit agreement with Mexico, with the government of Mexico. Hmm. And he hears about it because... He needed help. This guy Fisher needed help with the permit because he was moving 50 tons of gold. Wait. He discovered it. He found the treasure. Yeah, he found dude. 50 tons of gold, right? And uh, now you know, who's too busy for a treasure hunt? Right. What's up, professor? Who's the smart guy? Now, I just son? have to say I am never too busy for a treasure hunt. <laughs> I know that about FYI. you. FYI. I like that about you actually. Thank you. So, the gold back then was worth 36 million dollars. All right, Professor Bolton's cut would have been $18 million. In today's dollars, his cut would be worth $275 million. Wow. But he didn't take the cut? or he... So, no, he didn't. He told the guy, I'm too busy yeah, for your treasure busy. hunt. So the guy didn't come back and go, well, here's a little well, bit. Well, he could have thrown him a little bit well, for yeah. translating But he's it. not like, you know, At you're generous. take him dude. to dinner. I think he may have been a little, you know, heard of by it. Send like... him an edible arrangement something. <laughs> now, um, this, like... You have to understand that this stuck in the professor's craw, right? You know, yeah. So he's like, oh, I kind of messed up on that one. So now when Drake's <laughs> plate comes around, he's like, he's a little more, little more willing to risk things because, and also he loves this. This is, this is the money, whatever, Spanish gold, whatever. Drake's plate is, you know, what matters to him. Yeah. So who was Sir Francis Drake? Do you know, like you're a California, but you went to private school. You went to Catholic school. So uh-huh. I don't know like what all you were taught. I know the California curriculum, but what do you know about Sir Francis Drake? Um, I know that there's a really long road named after him in Marin County. That is true. Um, I know that the exit for Sir Francis Drake backs up onto 101 <laughs> just past San that Quentin in the morning. <laughs> um, no, I I remember learning about Sir Francis Drake, particularly I think in like fourth grade when we did California history mm-hmm. and we went to 
on a field trip to Marin Headlands. And oh, do you say you guys see Drake's Bay? I saw his ghost. That's even better. Yeah, we saw Drake's Bay. I don't know. I you know what. I, I like to keep the past the past. <laughs> I'm just going to leave that what in the What I'm trying review. to say is I know they told me something and I don't remember what yeah, it was. He's he's an interesting figure because I think he doesn't – he gets short shrift now in history because he was, you know, a, a slaver, uh, a colonizer in a way that is no longer so sexy and flashy. You know, it's <laughs> like people no longer – like he's not just an explorer, right? The yeah. guy had a, a really – well, let's just go over a couple things about Sir Francis Drake. Got Don't, it. Okay. In 1577 – Francis Drake was a pirate, essentially. He oh. was, uh, yeah, the English would have called him a privateer, right? <laughs> so as an example of like what he did as a privateer, he went over to an Irish island. Uh, it was called Raithland Island, right? And he uh, slaughtered a bunch of Irish men and women and children and uh, killed so many of them that he caught the queen's eye. And she's like, bring him to me. And Queen Elizabeth is like, no, could you do that to the Spanish? She's like, I like the cut of your jib. Yeah, the way you Genocide slaughter Genocide really gets me going. Heathen Irish. Well, so, I guess it would be heathen to them, yeah. So he go. oh. And Drake's like, hey, queen, bet. I'm on it. Just send me out there. Give me a boat. I'll chop up them Spanish dogs. Ew. And she's like, okay, then it is odd. <laughs> Here is a fleet of ships. Go wreck shop on the Spanish dogs, dear I Drake. Don't, I don't like this one bit. Right? Yeah, he's, I told you, he's not a really likable no, guy. He's a bad, bad he's, man. Yeah, he's bad business. Now, he's also a hard ass. Like, this dude is like, well, I'll tell you this well, one story. Well, I wouldn't story. imagine him to be a little soft teddy bear if he's going around <laughs> no. murdering families and then being like, you like that? I got more up where that came from. <laughs> That's just with my left foot. Watch you be doing my yeah. right foot. No, so the dude is like, uh, uh, he's up there with like... Um, Definitely Columbus or with Cortez, where he just goes over and is really cruel to the people he encounters. So, mm -hmm. but also the people with him. There was his his co-commanders, his dude uh, Thomas Doughty, right? He wants to get rid of Thomas Doughty after Thomas Doughty, like in the middle of the Indian Ocean, is like just saying, I don't believe what you're doing, man. I'm having problems with your leadership. I think we need to go back to England. He's like, you know what? You're a witch and you're treasonous and you're a mutineer. I mean, that's like the three big things that you can say in like 1580, right? So he's like, dude's like, okay, well, then I demand a trial. English law. And he's like, nope. The Queen Elizabeth gave me special dispensation. I ain't got to do nothing with no law. Here, well, here's what. Here's the trial. You're on trial before me. And you know what? You're guilty. So then he's like, well, that sucks. And so <laughs> Thomas Doughty, like, they have dinner the night before he, like, you know, they he's going to serve sentence. The two of them are like old chums. There's this record of some uh, like scribe, right? It's basically a witness to the dinner. He's like, oh, and they were the most dear and chummy as they'd always been before, right? The next day, Drake gets up and beheads Thomas Doughty. After sharing an evening of feeding each other fatty goose meat? <laughs> yes, exactly. What a rude, rude man. Well, I say. <laughs> so he keeps on going. He loses ship after ship. His fleet is down to one boat, right? And it's called the Pelican. And he decides, you know what? That's not a good name for my last boat. I'm going to rename it the Golden Hind. Ah, that strikes a memory of mine. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so it also a little I flash. remember them telling me about that. <laughs> that brain cell just fired yeah. off. Like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> It woke up, yawned, and was like, we've heard of that. I know this one. Yeah. So he starts taking the Golden Hind, and now he's over in the Pacific, right? And he's skirting along South America. He's raiding Spanish, like, you know, uh, towns, or not really towns, but, you know, like encampments. And he's raiding Spanish ships. He's going after, because they have the treasure fleet that's pulling all the silver and gold out of mm -hmm. the West. But they're not going back all the way to Spain. They go to the Philippines. They go that direction. Oh, so okay. he's catching the ships going west. Right? Got it. They're coming got off it. the shore. But at the same time, they're covered by, you know, the, the 
the treasure galleons have like, an escort. So they, he doesn't really want to run into them. He's looking for like any ship that may be by itself going to meet the flotilla. Little, little stragglers. Exactly. So he catches one and he pulls in basically what would be the equivalent of $10 million off of one ship. Whoa. That's not the big shit. Just, he just gets this one just a treasure one. ship. Yeah. All right. Wow. So he continues north after he gets that. And he's like, you know, going on. He eventually makes it all the way up to Oregon. Right. Mm-hmm. And then he doubles back south because he's like, oh, this place is all foggy and lame. And That's he goes, cold. Yeah. I, like, I don't like this. It's all loggy. Everyone the wears flannel. <laughs> so he then bumps his way down south and he gets to Northern California and he shows up at conveniently enough, Drake's Bay. <laughs> so the bay that eventually obviously holds his name. He goes ashore and he claims the land for the Queen Elizabeth's kingdom. That always queendom. seems weirder, right? Yeah, because you'd be the Queen's queendom, right? But it's like, I guess. I so mean. he claims the land for Queen and queendom and names it Nova Albion, right? Which means New Albion. Anyway, to mark his claim, Drake consecrates this land with an engraved brass plate the plate that we've been discussing. And then he and his crew just kick it. Man, his crew, they, you know, they careen. They're like cleaning the boat. They're getting ready to make the long trip back to England. He's like, look, I'm done with it. I've claimed this whole continent. He doesn't know how big it is, but he's like, yeah, the Spanish can have what's south of here. We got all whatever this is. They're doing uh-huh. like beach bonfires and... Oh, yeah, total, like, back, like old school Burning Man stuff. Yeah, just totally. dancing around naked, rubbing, like, charcoal dust on each other's faces. and Murderous freaks. <laughs> so when Drake arrives back in England, he has so much treasure that he's stolen because he keeps taking others. Like, that's, that's just one ship I mentioned. He comes back and he gives Queen Elizabeth half of the, his of his load. Mm-hmm. Her half share is more than all of England took in that year. Wow. Yeah. So she's like, bro, you did it, son. Ooh, I'm going to name you Sir Francis Drake. Oh, and she did the old taparoo yep. with the... Doubles him up, double okay. tap. <laughs> and now there's a hotel in San, in San Francisco named after it. That, right? was, that was the prize. So this, the the hotel that we've, uh, you know, where Bolton makes his announcement, that that plate was real. But was it real? Mm. Okay, there's this group that I'd mentioned earlier, the Drunken Lovers of History. Right. And they were called the Clampers. So the question is, these Clampers, what was their involvement as historical Drunken Lovers of History? Like, basically, I'll I'll back up. I'll put it this way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In 1937... Professor Herbert Bolton, he puts his full weight of his academic rigor, right? He's like, this plate is authentic. I want everybody to know. And he says, uh, quote, the authenticity of the tablet seems to me beyond all reasonable doubt, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like all reasonable. He tells the Oakland Tribune, if the Drake plate is bogus, the hoax was perpetrated by someone who had not only studied the history of his voyages minutely, but who had also had the knowledge of ship's fittings of the 16th century. And, you know, also there's one other thing. He said that his finding would, quote, may remake California history, right? So he then, because he's basically risking his reputation, he goes and has some other people at Columbia, some experts from the electrochemical division run an analysis on his plate. And they're like, oh, yeah, bro, it's real. This is totally real. So Columbia backs his play. So now the headlines go out, right? The plate is proclaimed a lost part of California history. School kids learn about it in the textbooks. It becomes official California history for 40 years. Mm. Then comes the 400th anniversary of Drake's arrival. It's the year is 1977, right? Mm. Somebody's like, hey, that plate that we've always been talking about the last 40 years, 
what if we uh, test it to really, because remember, I, there were some people who doubted it when it first came in. Before we go to put it out on display, we should just make sure that it's right. Ironically. Well, they have better, you know, technology by Oh, completely. Then. Completely. So the professor is this dude, James D. Hart, right? He's also a UC Berkeley professor. At this point, Herbert Bolton is gone, right? He has passed away. So R.I.P. R.I.P. Our man Herbert Herbert E. So he has the uh, this other professor, James D. Hart. He has chemists at Oxford and Berkeley test the plate. Shocker of all shockers, the officially recognized forty year long piece of official history of California is a fake. Oh, yeah, I know. Poor, but he didn't live to see it. So that's he doesn't true. Know, he went out right? thinking yeah, he was exactly. on top. So the plate had too much zinc in the alloy mix and far too little copper. That's what the oh. chemists come back. They're like, yeah, this couldn't have been made in 16th century. And there's also these little cuts on the edge. And basically, people ruled out it on multiple uh, reasons, right? Okay. So now that the Drake's plate is a fake, who would fake this plate of Sir Francis Drake? Hmm. The clampers, right? But clampers. who are these clampers? I don't, I I have to know because it sounds like a bunch of rascals to me. <laughs> the clampers. I will tell you more about them when we're back after this break. I love it. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold Blooded. The Apollo Jim murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way. Knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with the Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s. She looked like a million bucks. With zero qualifications. She had a Harvard plaque. Tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. That this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately eleven million dollars. Nearly ten million dollars was all gone. Employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, season five, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, and we're back with the final revelation of how this Drake's Plate fake could come to be. And I've told you, I've hinted at it with the Clampers. Have you ever heard of the Clampers? I mean, they're part of California history. I heard about them when you first started talking about them. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> so their their official name is, e, or the title is Eclampus Vitus. And it sounds like Latin, right? You, yeah, you but it's not. Clampus is not a Latin word. Yeah, right? But what do you think it sounds like? Because I was doing the same thing. The I was clampets? Like, yeah, clamp, like Jed Clampet. <laughs> yeah. like, so yeah, I don't know. I had to look it up, right? And you know, e, e is, it is Latin. It means like out of, like e pluribus unum, mm-hmm. out of many comes one. But then we, you have the, uh, as you pointed out, Clampus is not really Latin, but Vitus is not really Latin either. It's the name of a saint, St. Vitus, where we get the St. Vitus dance from. Right, it, right. If it was Latin, it would be vitae, which would be life, yeah. as you know. So it should be ecce clampus, or ecce lampus vitae. And that would mean behold the light of life. Oh, okay. But they decided to, because, you know, the historical funny guys, they decided to split it and they made it ec- Eclampus Vitus. And so they take this one thing and they basically turn it into dog Latin. And now, I mean, this is their sense of it's humor. It's just an it's inside like, oh, joke. We made a little them. twist on Latin, right? We so made a funny. The group's official uh, motto is also in Latin and it's Credo Quiria Absurdum. Uh-huh. And that means I believe because it is absurd. That's kind of my. 
motto. Too. <laughs> it's your motto as well, exactly. So that's their whole vibe of absurdity and Latin, basically, right? Just no, like <laughs> no Latin, just vibes. <laughs> just vibes, baby. So the full name of this order is the Ancient and Honorable Order of E. Clampus Vitus. And the they're basically a fraternal society, and they call themselves clampers. And they love history, but when they say history, they mean street-level people's history. They don't like old, rich white man's history. And that's their term. That's not me saying that, even though I may agree. So this is like Zen-esque. Yeah, kind of, but a little less political. You know, they're much okay. more cultural historians. Got it. Um, so they've placed a thousand plaques all over California marking special historical things. I'm, I'm, I'm really enjoying this. <laughs> <laughs> so now the types of things, here's, a, here's an example of what they, they have a plaque in the town of Volcano, California, population 101, <laughs> that celebrates, quote, moose milk. You ever heard of moose milk? <laughs> no. So, I mean, I assume. Well, yeah, I mean, like the actual milk of a moose's. The milk of the meese. <laughs> so it's, it was a Gold Rush era cocktail. Think uh, bourbon, rum, and heavy cream. Wait, is that a real thing? It was a they... real drink, yeah. And so they had this bar that used to make it. So they put up like a plaque celebrating just the idea <laughs> of moose milk. All right. Like, give it up for moose milk. Yeah, let's just. <laughs> another example is they, uh, in the town of Murphy's, another gold rush town, they uh, slapped up a plaque that uh, celebrated the historic saber-toothed tiger that once was in that area. Okay. There's another town in the town of Lee Vining, population 202. Oh, yeah, I've been there. Uh, you know, up by Mono Lake mm-hmm. and everything. Okay, so there's silent film star Nellie Bly had a house built out there that was built upside down. Okay, that's a whole other thing. Yeah. But go they, on. The clampers went out there, they put up a plaque, and they hung it upside down to mark the house. That's cute. Right? Celebrate good times, come on. That's, that's cute. Have you ever seen a clamper plaque anywhere? I've never seen one. No, but now I want to find them and go, like, that's a really good road trip. Like, yes. Seeking out the clamper plaques. They're all, ghost towns, um, the gold rush towns, old west, like like, like um, old Sacramento. Yeah. That's the kind of places that I'm... I'm already big into that, but if there's <laughs> also silly plaques... Well, they're basically... Did they create this just for me? I'm thinking. It's real peak California, it's you know? It's super... I'm, I am peak California. Well, the concept of peak California, do you want to... Like, how would you articulate that? It It's an, a sort of an aesthetic, and I hate to say it, but a vibe. A vibe. But mm-hmm. there's this, it, I look at like peak California occurred in between like the l- mid 60s to the mid to late 70s in mm-hmm. my mind. Okay. And it has to do with the landscapes. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't necessarily have to be in that time frame. But if you're in a landscape in California with like the rolling golden hills. Oh, and yeah. There's the smell of like eucalyptus and bay leaf and mm-hmm. ocean air and yeah. California poppies scattered about. That's like sort of peak California. So it's me. like if you could smell the cinematography of Harold and Maude. Yes. Yeah. Bingo. Okay, so that peak California is what they also kind of like to celebrate, that feeling, that vibe, if you will, right? Mm-hmm. But for them, it's much more about like the gold rush and like that's their version of peak California, but very much a similar thing to what you're describing, yeah. right? So. The ancient and honorable order of Eclampus Vitus, uh, they get kicked off in the gold rush. They actually started in the gold rush in 1851, right? This was, The group was called, a, quote, a gold miners burlesque fraternity. <laughs> you just love that. But, uh, it just over, makes me think of like an old-timey piano playing. Totally, all jaunty. Yeah, right? Now, over time, the, they eventually just, you know, fell apart. The original configuration of the group dies off pretty much with the gold rush. As people move on, they, they move on to the Klondike and other gold strikes. That vibe it falls apart. Bret Hart leaves, Mark Twain leaves. Everyone's like, eh, we clampers. Then, 1931, the clampers come back. 
Hmm. There are now 40 chapters in California. Really? Yeah, they're, they're very popular. Like, I've run into them in, like, Nevada and stuff. Are they're they problematic, or is this something <laughs> that I might want to get in with? Uh, I'll just say this way. I mean, you have people who love history, and that history is pretty much made, um, a Western history. Mm-hmm. You're often often going to run into some racists who have fetishized the history. So That's why I asked. There is, there is that risk that I felt when I was around some of the clampers <laughs> of, like, hmm, your facial hair says racism. I don't know why, but it does. <laughs> There's just that, right? But you know, like, yeah, I like that. I still, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not tarring them with one feather or one, <laughs> uh, what do you call it? One brush, you know? Uh-huh. Like, I'm not saying that all of them are but like I, this. Yeah, I get But you. there is that, you run into that vibe occasionally. Also, this happens with like a Nordic. The celebrations, you yeah. know, you're like people, oh. people into Viking culture. Exactly, you're like oh, you know, Which kind you're of ruins get there it for some. others. Totally, completely. Are, yeah. Some former members of the Clampers, just to give you a sense of who these people were in 1931, who mm-hmm. wanted to bring this back. It was like a uh, kind of an honor roll of the early California luminaries. So you have like film director John Houston. Awesome. But it lasts like. Where, like, another clamper is Herb Kane, the San Francisco columnist. Super awesome. Right? The, another example of one was oh, that the hammy actor who used to perform with the monkeys in old movies. Um, oh, Ronald Reagan. <laughs> I think he went into politics after the monkey I movies. Think, I, I don't know. I lost familiar. track. Yeah, that guy, he was a clamper. Really? Yeah. So you have a historical drinking society that loves plaques, loves California, and admits Ronald Reagan. Is this group good? Bad? I can't tell what's up with them, right? Yeah. Would you gonna to go to a meeting? Hell yeah. Okay. So I mean, the- I'll go. I'll do. I'll go anywhere until they <laughs> kick me out, like, or I leave in in a in a fit of disgust. Yeah, exactly. Kicking over furniture. But on your you way know, out. as I always say, I'll try anything twice. Oh, twice. Look at you. I'm only willing to do it once. Well, the one, first time might once. be bad on a fluke or whatever. So I'll do that with food. Like if I went food. to one clamper meeting mm-hmm. and I was like, oh, no. <laughs> and then I left, I might be like, well, maybe that was just that particular chapter. And I check out another chapter and they're. You're broad-minded. Cool. I like that. I really am. Yeah. So the Clampers probably would dig you. They they think of themselves as like the clown princes of the Freemasons. Oh, they're wait, like the oh. look ma, no pants version of the American Historical <laughs> Society, right? <laughs> So, because they're all history nerds, they're also, like, heavy on the nerd part. So, they take everything super seriously. Okay, I like and that, too. this brings us back to our Herbert E. Bolton. Yep. So, as a reminder, I'm not sure if I told you this, but I think I mentioned it. He was the Grand Royal Historian of the original revived chapter, the Herba Buena chapter, which is in San Francisco. So, he's this vital member of the Clampers, right? Oh. But he's also a member of the legit California Historical Society. This yeah. Is, so, the Clampers... Like, they pull off this historical scam. Why would they scam one of their own? Was so he, he in on it? He had to know that they were they were plackers, these clampers, <laughs> that they went spreading the plaques. This didn't dawn on him? Like, so, the calls coming from inside that, the house? Yeah, well, I'll tell you this much. He wasn't in on it. He okay. went, as I said before, he went to his grave fully confident in the quality of Drake's plate. He was like, okay. it's real. Okay. Now, two decades later, the truth comes out. So what is the truth? Well, back to our clampers. Okay. There were five men who conspired to embarrass their esteemed colleague, Herbert E. Bolton. Wait, so he was targeted with this? They wanted to make his wildest dreams come true, and that became his curse. Oh, so it was like a gift, but... No, not not necessarily. Not really. They wanted to embarrass him. Oh, they did. Oh, we'll get into that. It was described as a prank, but as you hear about the nature of it, I think some of them are pranking, but one of them was not pranking. This is a true roller coaster ride, because I go from really liking to then, oh, Oh, no. <laughs> it's all over the place. So here, I'll, I'll just tell you about these these five men, and we'll yeah. get into their clamper spirit. You can you know decide on your own. Okay. So 
they start this prank, right? And then they don't expect it to go so well. They don't expect him to be so excited and go to the press. Look what I found. It's Drake's plate, right? So they can't control what's happening. Their hoax gets out of their hands. And you have to understand, okay, I'll just tell you the practicals of how they pulled it off. Mm -hmm. An Alameda shipbuilder constructed the brass plate, right? So these nerds had hand-carved it. They put the lettering into the plate. They made sure that it matched 16th century spellings, and they got the grammar. One of them, like, you know, was, like, eyeballing it to make sure it had the right patina. They all had different specialties, right? So they expected it to be convincing, but they didn't expect it to be so convincing, right? And Mm -hmm. they also had left marks on it to kind of go a little wink and a nod, you know, like, oh, this is not real, bro. Yeah. But Beryl, our old man, Beryl Shin on his hike, when he found it, he'd found it not where they left it. Someone else had found it first and threw it there, and then Beryl <laughs> finds it, so it has a little extra on it, so now it looks maybe, I don't know, a little bit more yeah, old. Yeah, a little worse for wear. So the hoaxers, basically, they were like, um, you know, they try to get Bolton to basically shut up in in the public. They've embarrassed him more than they want to. So they're doing things like they write an op-ed to the paper, like, maybe it's fake, bro. Have you ever checked this? It gets ignored. They write a pamphlet entitled (laughs) Ye Preposterous Book of Brass with ease all at the end. I know that when I want to put a stop to something, I write a a pamphlet, pamphlet, right? (laughs) Like, first thing I'm going to do. And then the pamphlet, they say, check the back. There's a hidden message. It's in paint. Look on the back. Hey, look on the back. Nobody, the pamphlet doesn't, nobody hears it, right? So the five clampers, these dudes, their names are G. Ezra Dane, George Haviland Barron, George C. Clark, Lorenz Knoll, and Albert Dressler. Dane's the ringleader, right? He's uh-huh. he's the core member of the E. Clampus Vitus back in the early 30s. He's a history buff like all the others. He wrote three books, two with his mother. And his okay. last book was called Ghost Town. In it, he records interviews with all the oldest residents of this town called Columbia up in Tuolumne County in the gold country. And it's like considered a, a an actual living record of the speech of how gold diggers talked because it, they're so old at that time, the 30s, you could actually get some people who were still alive and they remembered. So he basically records the speech of the gold diggers in the gold era. So it's a great historical record, right? Like Bolton, he really does care about the history. What he doesn't care about is, you know, his colleague Bolton too much. So Dane knew Bolton through the Clampers, right? He's like, you know, they're they're friendly. He's the one who's like, you know, we need to put this this ECV for, you know, E. Clampus Vitus mm-hmm. on the yeah. back. And they do it. And they paint it in glow-in-the-dark fluorescent paint. And they figure that'll trigger him. That's his addition, right? So among the co-conspirators was this dude, George Haviland Barron. Remember that name because he's the one. Okay. In 1909, he'd been appointed the curator of California history at San Francisco's De Young Museum, right? And that's like a cool museum. It's like it's like a naturalist museum. Super cool. It's big time. He's, yeah, he pretty much was like, you know, the the way that Bolton is saying what history is from the university, he's doing that for the public. So these are kind of like peers in that regard, mm-hmm. but they also are rivals. Mm-hmm. Barron loses his job in 1933, and he blames Bolton for it. And he gets pushed out as the curator of the D. Young Museum. He's oh. like, there's only one person who people would listen to who could over who could say that I don't deserve this job. So he gets all mad about that. And what's his revenge? Well, since he's a member of the California Historical Society, just like Bolton, he's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to embarrass that guy in front of all of our peers. Oh, wow. So allegedly, it was his hatred of Bolton that is the driver for this embarrassing hoax. It wasn't just the rest of the co-conspirators, they're like, oh, yeah, this will be great. We'll have this fun thing. We'll embarrass him. And Barron's like, yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, we'll embarrass him. Oh, yeah, do it, do it. <laughs> Dig, scratch the plate. <laughs> right, so another co-conspirator, Lorenzo Knoll, 
tells us, you know, uh, in the, through the historic record that it was Baron who's like, you know, we need to get this guy. And he's like, these are all the things we would knew that would fool him. So Baron goes and he purchases a one eighth inch thick piece of commercial rolled brass from the Alameda Chandlery. Mm -hmm. Then he pays a shipbuilder to cut the brass sheet to fit to the desired size of the sheet. And then once he has all this fabricated, he goes and he hands inscribes something, right? And then he takes the plate over to the Marin shore and it's not exactly where Beryl finds it, right? So it gets moved. We know that because he he says where it was just where they had put it. His plan was to lead Bolton over there, discover it, and be like, oh, look at that. What is that? Oh, like He wanted to see him <laughs> discover it. But Beryl discovers it before he can set his trap. He doesn't oh, even get to spring his man. ego trap, right? So he's all... Now, in 2001... These notes are discovered in Berkeley's Bancroft Library that Lorenz Knoll, one of the co-conspirators, had left behind after his death. Historians dig through it. They find, wait a minute, this is totally a hoax. Now they have all of the evidence from Knoll's notes, right? Mm -hmm. Now, the historians had created a team to research this story. They write a story in 2003, and they publish it. You can find this online. It's a good—you should read it. Now, this all happened seven decades after the hoax was first enacted, and this was all done so that Barron could settle a score, like a museum curator and yeah. a histor history professor, who were both members of the secret drinking club or drinking society with a history problem. <laughs> this is all done just because of their little rivalry. That's wild. Right? And so Barron... He, like, he's, the, in my opinion, the bad guy. Yeah. But I oh, want yeah. you to recognize one other little bit before we go about my man, Professor Bolton. Okay. Back to Beryl Shin. Beryl was a, uh, he had a fiancé when he discovered the plate, right? Mm -hmm. When he takes the plate to, the Drake's plate to Professor Bolton, he's like, look, here's this thing, here's this plate. Professor Bolton gets all excited. He's like, oh, my God, this is, I can't believe this. Where did you find it? And he's like, look, bro, I'll sell it to you. Mm -hmm. right? Professor Bolton's like, oh, okay, yeah, fine. He's like, and then he's like, Professor Bolton, don't let them short shift you on this. You got to get maximum dollar. Like you said, this is a major historical fine. Don't let the university short you. And he's like, oh, I'll get you as much as I can. He's like, no, I'm talking for you. Don't let them, make them respect you, man. He's like, okay. He goes, he gets $2,000 and he gives it to Beryl. And he's like, here you go for the plate. And that'd be about $40,000 now. Whoa. So Beryl goes and he takes his wife and they go get married. They buy a house. They use this money. So some good was, yeah, it comes from this story, right? Well, he, Beryl described Bolton as, he said, uh, quote, he made it possible for me to get that $2,000. He's a good guy, all right, and smart, too. And so <laughs> I just like focusing on that part of the story, which yeah. is, is ultimately Bolton was a hero in a way that he would never know. His plate made a whole family, and we don't know what will come of that family, but it's far more valuable to history than confirming something that we already knew. Yeah, yeah. Very so, true. Right? So I like to think of that as a ridiculous tale of history, drinking, and male ego. It is. That's exactly what that is. So what's your ridiculous takeaway here? What do you think our ridiculous takeaway is? Well, I think the ridiculous takeaway is that if you're going to, first of all, a prank can very easily spiral into a crime. Oh, yes. I know this well. As someone who's done, as I had when the sheriff called me and said, "Hey, man, yeah. we saw what you did." <laughs> but I, I think like, like, this isn't really the sheriff. If you're gonna do a prank, a lot of times it's easy to forget what the later ramifications will be, or to imagine them fully. Yeah, that was my so problem. They had no idea that they were gonna change everything. They thought they California were just gonna. History. Yeah, they just thought that they were gonna make this and like bust this guy and embarrass him, and instead, 
They changed the entire way that people were taught things. And, they, yeah, I mean, they had school make... kids to be taught a lie for 40 years. The yeah. These historians basically created a miseducation. Yeah, but you know what? Maybe history's all a lie. Oh. I'm just going to get deep. Damn, take it there. <laughs> well, that's my story for this week. Thanks I really for enjoyed us, that one. That was good. I'm Elizabeth Dutton. I'm Zarin Burnett. <laughs> you can find <laughs> us online at Ridiculous Crime on both Twitter and Instagram. If you got a tip for us about a ridiculous crime you'd like to hear about, you want to confess to a ridiculous crime, you just want to just email us and tell us we're cute, go ahead. Email us at ridiculouscrime at gmail.com. Thank you. Ridiculous Crime is hosted by Elizabeth Dutton and Zaren Burnett, produced and edited by Professor of Vibes, Dave Kustin. Research is by the Dean of All Things Important and Rare, Marissa Brown. Our theme song is by the chairs of the music department, Dr. Thomas Lee and Dr. Travis Dutton. Executive producers are Sir Ben Bolin and His Majesty Noel Brown. Ridiculous Crime is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP, the worldwide association of specialty programs and schools. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. It was trying to brand us. So we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. Join my host as they unravel the story of the largest and most shocking organization in the history of the troubled teen industry. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. And we host Stages Podcast. Binge close to 100 episodes. Hear the inside stories from backstage and behind the scenes as we go beyond the resume and into the heart of creativity and what it really takes to be in the business of show business. Don't miss our chats with this season's Tony nominees. If you love theater and entertainment, you are going to love Stages Podcast. Subscribe to Stages Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit us at stagespodcast.net. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.